Buy with Rob is your best choice when purchasing your new home in the Puget Sound area. Call 360-710-9425 today and get started on the best home buying experience you will ever have. Go to buywithrob.com today. You didn't approve his conduct as an officer. He wasn't worthy of your loyalty. So you turned on him. You ragged him. You made up songs about him. If you'd given Quig the loyalty he needed, do you suppose the whole issue would have come up in the typhoon? You're an honest man, Steve. I'm asking you. Do you think it would have been necessary for you to take over? It probably wouldn't have been necessary. Yeah. If that's true, then we were guilty. Ah, you're learning, Willie. You're learning that you don't work with the captain because you like the way he parts his hair. You work with him because he's got the job or you're no good. Well, the case is over. You're all safe. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Podcasts are verbal narcissism for ugly journalists. Hello, can I talk to Mr. David, Dave Bowman? Approach and identify. Hello? The idea that the 25th Amendment would ever be used is, is really hard to contemplate that we're at that point. And it would require the vice president to part company with the president, as well as a majority of the cabinet, and for those folks to get together and to ask the Congress to sit down and consider the president's competency. So the op-ed is correct. It would trigger a constitutional crisis. Congress would have a lot of decision-making power. We can debate all day whether they would stand up and perform their function under this setting. But it would be largely unprecedented. If senior administration officials think that the President of the United States is not able to do his job, then they should invoke the 25th Amendment. Man, battle stations, missile. Chief of Watch, sign the general alarm. From the Buy With Rob studio, located in beautiful Silverdale, Washington, this is the Dave Bowman Show. Now, here is your submarine-qualified, well-coffeed, stuffy, elitist history buff host, Dave Bowman. Well, this county has pushed the fire. Well, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today. Most of them are far beyond our control, you might say. So perhaps it's time we took a pause and thought about life and thought about the laws of gravity, the Constitution, the 25th Amendment, politics, and or the news. Don't touch that dial. Just try to hear me out for a while. So there you heard Elizabeth Warren. She believes that the 25th Amendment should be invoked. Should it be? And how did we even get to this 25th Amendment anyway? We're going to talk about all that because it's Constitution Thursday. Here's how you get a hold of me. The text machine is open. Area code 209-565-DAVE. It's 565-3283 for text messages and voicemail messages. Email remains Dave at the Dave Bowman Show.com. And of course, we're on the web. Just look for the Dave Bowman Show on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, Sucky TuneIn app well as use your preferred non-denominational web search browser to go to the DaveBowmanShow.com. Eloqui conizio, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge. So there she was, Elizabeth Warren, who obviously does not like President Trump, and President Trump does not like her. One is a senator, one is a president. And post-op-ed, by the way, the... uh, the smart money now is on John Huntsman for that. Uh, post the op-ed, she went out in front of a TV camera and a microphone and announced that they should do it. The vice president, the, the cabinet should get together and they should 25th, 45 is the is the phrase. I don't know if it keeps popping up. I've been doing research on the 25th Amendment, so you know how Google works. So I'm getting ads every day now for 2545 t-shirts. They get 25 and then a slash or a 45 or they, you know, the implication is let's use the 25th Amendment to get rid of President Trump. And this, of course, is gaining more momentum than it should, I guess, is part of the problem. Is it that there's a there's a fundamental misunderstanding, of course, of of how this is supposed to work. And there is some ignorance about exactly how it works in the broader context. Sure, you read what it says on the paper, which is pretty simple. 
But like most things in the Constitution, there are some some subtleties that get ignored. Section four of the 25th Amendment says, quote, whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments, that would be the cabinet, or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. It's like I said, it sounds pretty simple on paper, but if you start delving into that, you're going to quickly run into some things where you're going to go, wait a minute, what exactly does that mean? The first one you should notice is that it doesn't say that the vice president becomes president, does it? It does not. Which, of course, harkens back to the original elements of the Constitution, which were similar in verbiage. The idea that if the president were incapacitated or impeached or somehow dies or whatever, the, vice, the, the powers and duties of the office devolve upon the vice president. Well, <laughs> to you and I today... 50 years after the passage of the 25th Amendment, we don't really have a problem with that. We don't really, we, we've never really had an issue with the fact that if the president dies, the vice president becomes president. To us, that seems blindingly clear. But such was not always the case. And in fact, there was a great deal of argument as to whether or not that's what it meant. <sighs> Not really surprising, is it, though? There were a lot of arguments. You got to go back in the history of how this happened. You got to go back in the history of why they did it that way. The, the presumption was, under colonial laws, most of, the, most of the colonies now states had in place plans of succession if something were to happen to the governor. This had been going on since they were royal governors. There were plans on how things worked. Even to a degree, there were plans to what to do if the governor wasn't available. In other words, he was traveling or something. It was kind of interesting because a few years ago uh, in California, when I lived in California, there was a, a momentary blip when the current governor, uh, one Arnold Schwarzenegger, left the country. And the current, what I referred to as ass governor, the assistant governor, the lieutenant governor, was a guy by the name of Abel Maldonado. And um, the presumption was that while the governor was out of the country, the assistant governor, the lieutenant governor, would, you know, carry out the powers and duties of the office. But in this particular case, the governor, then Governor Schwarzenegger, went out of his way to not tell the lieutenant governor that he was leaving and continued to carry his cell phone with him and conduct all the business of the office, even though he was out of the country. And at the time, it was kind of funny. But back in the colonial days, when the governor was not available, it was just automatically assumed that the lieutenant governor or the designated person assumed those powers of that office. And so it really wasn't that controversial in the ideas of what was going on. The framers probably didn't really think that much about it when they didn't really debate it all that much. They just sort of, the, the, the whole reason for having a vice president in their minds was, something happens to the president, we got a backup. And then we'll have laws that define who's after that. And in 1792, they passed the laws of succession and who goes where and when and why. And they just sort of left it there. And then we started electing presidents and we started having administrations and everything seemed fine until vice presidents, oddly enough, started dying. You know, they have a saying about the Soviet Union. What is it? The cold, the, the, uh, the most uh, deadly disease in the Soviet Union is the cold. And the most deadly disease in the United States for quite a bit of time was being vice president. It seemed to kill people left and right, and nobody really knew what to do about it. And so they just ignored it. They just said, well, okay, the vice president dead. Well, have a funeral and move on. And that's what they did. And then came the day that James Madison got really sick and almost died and they didn't have a vice president or they had a vice president that they didn't think should be president 
that created some consternation. It created some some difficulties. And people started thinking about this, and they started thinking, well, what do we do if? There's that word. The president has his inability. He doesn't, can't carry out his duties. What happens then? But then James Madison got better, and everybody went, that was close. Newspapers, by the way, were reporting that he wasn't going to survive the year. He ended up living another 20 years, I guess, on, on top of that. But then came the day where we elected the oldest man ever elected to the office, William Henry Harrison. And I guess you could make, you could say that his administration was synonymous with the concept of just dying in office, because that's about all he accomplished. I mean, he basically got inaugurated and then died. And his vice president, a guy by the name of John Tyler, was left with the position of what to do. Now, Tyler very firmly believed, he very passionately believed that the Constitution, as it was written then, this was prior to the 25th Amendment, made it clear that the office of the presidency became devolved upon the upon the vice presidency. But there were a lot of people who disagreed with him, including very prominent Americans. Henry Clay really did not like this. Daniel Webster, one of my favorite Americans, and one of, should be one of your favorite Americans, I mean, after all, he did beat the devil, um, was on the, the cabinet for William Henry Harrison, and was deeply concerned when he showed up for the first cabinet meeting with John Tyler, and all of a sudden, Tyler was running the country. You see, Harrison's idea had been, we'll have this cabinet, this executive department, we'll sit around the table, and everybody will have one vote. And so if we have a question, the whole cabinet will vote on it. Yes, I have a Secretary of War, but my Secretary of Commerce will, will also have a vote on whether or not we go to war or not kind of approach to things. And the president will have one vote just like everybody else. And so they had a few, I guess, meetings of that nature. Not very many, obviously. But when they sat down for the first meeting with Tyler, Daniel Webster asked that question. So are you going to do this the same way? And Tyler's response was, that, no, I'm the president. Hell. I'm, I'm, I'm the big G's. I'm the head HMC. I'm the, I'm the guy in charge. And uh, no, we're not going to do it that way. You're here to advise me, not tell me what to do, was his approach. And Webster kind of took that back with, wait a minute. You're not the president. You weren't elected to the presidency. You were the vice president, and the powers and duties of the office have devolved upon you, but not the office itself. Tyler, of course, disagreed vehemently with that, and in fact got a justice, a court justice there in D.C. to agree with him. And while there was no case involved, the judge wrote what was essentially an opinion, saying, John Tyler is president of the United States. He's appeared before me today and taken the oath of office. He's it. Tyler just sort of flipped that out and went, there it is. Now, you can say whatever you want about Tyler, and you can argue about his presidency, and you can discuss those things. But really, the lasting impact that he had was that he set the precedent that the vice president becomes the president, not the acting president. Not assuming the powers and duties of the office, but he becomes the president. And Tyler, let's, like I said, say what you will about him, but he made that clear. And so the nation went back to sleep, saying to itself, well, this is great. How do we, uh, how do we proceed from here? And everything went fine and fine. And, and, and even in the meantime, we had another assassination when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and Andrew Johnson became president, although... There were a lot of people that didn't like that. But in, 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 in fact, the very fact that Congress impeached Johnson pretty much acknowledged the fact that he was the president, pretty well ended the argument there, at least functionally, and at least for another generation. When James Garfield became president, he was a pretty popular guy. He was... You know, he's a Civil War general. He was all those kind of things. His, uh, his vice president was a guy by the name of Chester A. Arthur, who has gone down in history as being the only president named Chester A. Arthur. The only one named Chester. Arthur was politically somewhat distant from Garfield. He was added in, in one of the earliest means of, you know, securing an area 
for votes and sort of that thing. It was a political move. They were not close and they were not really in agreement on a lot of things. But, you know, the idea of service, they were both Civil War generals. They were both officers. They were both gentlemen. They understood that they had to do what was best for the country. And, of course, then Garfield gets assassinated. And the problem that they have isn't just the assassination. It isn't just the fact that he lingers on for a few days and before he finally dies. The problem is the guy that shot Garfield specifically says the re- one, of the re- one of the reasons that he shot Garfield is because he preferred Arthur as president. And so now the vice president is standing there as the president wavers and dips and rises and dips and rises. And is he going to survive? Is he not going to survive? And later on, there are, there are accusations that the doctors themselves commit medical malpractice. In fact, uh, John Ferrick pretty definitively feels that the president would have survived, that Garfield would have survived if the doctors had just left him alone. Uh, but, and, and John Ferrick's name we'll come back to here in a few minutes. But the idea here that, that, that Garfield is shot by a guy who wants to have Arthur as president is making things very uncomfortable. And in fact, major newspapers in the country pick up on this idea and they start running hmm, op-eds, as it were, about did Arthur hire the assassin? Did he did he plan this whole thing so that he could usurp the presidency of the United States and become the the king the, the president of the United States and 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 we know that his policies are different and we know that there are issues going on and this could be a real fiasco. Garfield ultimately dies. Chester A. Arthur becomes president, and he is really uncomfortable with this. And he starts agitating. He starts saying, is it just the office? Is it the powers? Am I real? I mean, I know Tyler did it. I know Johnson did it. But, but is it really clear? Should we really think about this? And Congress thinks about it and says, yeah, we're busy with other things. And goes on its way. And nothing happens. Then you run into the uh, the Grover Cleveland situation. Grover Cleveland becomes uh, the president of the United States after a death of a president. But the problem he has is that he is... Well, he doesn't, he's elected president. Sorry, I misspoke there. Grover Cleveland is elected president. His vice president is a guy by the name of Adelaide E. Stevenson. It's a common name, I guess, amongst people running for presidents. And Grover Cleveland has a problem in that he is deathly ill. He has a tumor in his mouth and is making it very difficult to speak. In fact, he's almost unintelligible at points. Does this meet the qualifications of being incapacitated inability there's some debate about that but he and stevenson do not get along at all they are not water they they are not words and music they are oil and water and the 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 thrust of their argument is economic the economy the panic of 1893 is tearing the country apart and congress's reaction to that is to do something well i mean it's congress so you know it's stupid whatever they do they pass the sherman act they, they, the Silver Buying Act, which Adlai Stevenson is very much in favor of, but this causes a lot of economic chaos. It essentially drives the good money out for the bad, and it's creating, and, and Cleveland doesn't want this. He wants the Sherman Act repealed, and he is working very hard to get the Sherman Act repealed, but if he dies or is in a, incapacitated and Adlai Stevenson takes over, he's in favor of this Silver Act. And he's going to continue that economic policy, which Cleveland clearly believes will result in the worst economic depression the nation has ever seen. So what does he do? Believe it or not, he he conspires with a bunch of his doctors. They get on the presidential yacht. They go out to sea, out on the ocean. Now, again, this is the 1890s, folks. This isn't, you know, the USS Mercy with its you know operating rooms and its stabilizers. This is a yacht where they are in a, a closed space, a cabin. It's got a 
pillar in the middle of it for the mast, and they, they're working around this. It's an, very tightly. There's no ventilation. There's nothing. And they ether up the president, and they go to work on his mouth. And they cut out the tumor, and of course they have to take out part of his jaw and a bunch of his teeth with this to the point where eventually they're going to have to build, in secret still, a what are you, a prosthetic for his mouth so that he can talk. And they do a good enough job of it that virtually no one knows. In fact, it isn't until 1919 when the last of these doctors who do this surgery is getting ready to to go meet his maker that he on his deathbed confesses that this is all true. There have been rumors in the papers about it for 20 years, but everybody denies it. Everybody says it didn't really happen. They're just making it up. And in fact, the guy that writes the original article saying that it happened, he gets, you know, basically blackballed from the business because he's t- he's making up stories. Well, 20 years later they find out, no, it's all true. And then they got to go in and do it again. All this because Cleveland doesn't want to give up his powers and duties of his office to Stevenson because he knows that Stevenson will continue to damage the country, in his opinion. You can start to see where this is, you know, what does it mean to be inability? What does inability mean? Grover Cleveland is knocked out with ether and having his jaw cut out, but he's not willing to let go of the reins of power at all. Because if he does... Chaos will ensue. William McKinley, of course, is shot uh, at the Expo, and that leads to Theodore Roosevelt. There's not as much controversy here because Roosevelt, at the at the initial part of this, Roosevelt is seen as basically controllable. He's he's basically seen as a big kid, a big teddy bear, as it were, and he's not he's not the Rose at that point. He's not the Roosevelt we will come to know in history as the the great reformer and the pusher and stuff like that. And so there's really not much of a discussion here. Woodrow Wilson, 1919, has his strokes and is completely incapacitated. He is bedridden. The cabinet gathers, and they try to convince the vice president, a guy by the name of Tumulty, they try to convince him that he needs to say, look, the president's incapacitated, I need to at least be the acting president because this guy, you know, he can't do anything. And oddly enough, Tumulty, who has been around for a while, remembers the issues with with Chester Arthur. He remembers the issues with Car- with uh, Cleveland and Stevenson. And he makes it very clear to the cabinet that I will have no part in this whatsoever. None. I, As long as I'm vice president, no one will do anything that will in any way, shape, or form, implies that Woodrow Wilson, who's completely disabled, he's completely incapacitated, he's bedridden, will not be president of the United States. And yeah, I know what that means. I mean, it means his wife's really running things, but but I will not be party to it, because if I am, people will say that I'm, I'm, I'm usurping his authority. And when Wilson, for, for whatever you think of him today, Wilson is an actually very, at the time, is a very popular president. And so Tumulty, who, you know, basically nobody knows, is not, he don't want to do this. And so when they, when Congress starts thinking about, well, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? Wilson doesn't run for reelection. And a guy by the name of Warren Harding is elected. And so we don't worry about it. His, his vice president, Calvin Coolidge, Harding gets himself embroiled in some, well, let's just call them scandals. And, uh, he just dies, goes to San Francisco and dies, which is probably the most fortuitous way he could have gotten out of those scandals because he probably would have been impeached. Congress, again, looks at what's going on, says to themselves, well, we need to think about this, but Coolidge is doing such a great job. Everything is so going so grandly. Everything is going so great that, in fact, in 1924, when the party is is debating whether they, you know, who to name for vice president, and they ask him, who do you want for your vice president? He says, you know, you guys did a good job of picking a 1920. Why don't you do it again? You don't need my help. Things are going so great that Congress just kind of forgets about it, and on we go. And these same arguments are still going on. What does it mean for the vice president to assume the duties and, you know, powers of the office, but is he the president? 
even going all the way back to James Tyler, John Tyler, sorry, the, uh, you know, okay, yeah, the precedent is there, but is it really what it means? Along comes a guy by the name of Eisenhower, Ike, everybody likes Ike, but Ike, mm, Ike's a sick man. The, uh, the, the pressures of war and all that have worn him down, and, and he has heart attacks, he has strokes, he has uh, inabilities, he's, you know, he's in surgery. And he hits upon an interesting solution with his vice president, a guy by the name of Richard Nixon. They actually sit down in the Oval Office and they draw up a paper between an agreement between them, between Eisenhower and Nixon. Okay, if this happens, then do this. Then you agree you'll do this. If this happens to me, then these powers will devolve. They outline it themselves. Of course, this is not in law. This is not in the Constitution. It's just an agreement between the president and the vice president so that the vice president doesn't look like a weasel later on. Well, we all kind of know how that worked out. When they are finally out of office, John Kennedy is elected with Lyndon Johnson as his vice president. Kennedy, we all know what happened. We don't often think about what could have happened. We, we understand that Kennedy was, was killed, but what if Kennedy had not died? What if, what if he had just been shot in the head and was essentially a, a vegetable? Not dead. Is it an inability? Who decides that it's an inability? Who decides what's going on here? Who decides how we're going to handle all this? The Constitution is not really clear about who decides these things. Congress sets up this and that, but what exactly does it mean? Kennedy, of course, passes away, and Johnson, in keeping with precedent, becomes the President of the United States and is subsequently re-elected as President of the United States. But in the meantime, even he realizes that this is, this is a problem, and we need to fix this problem. We need to sit down and say to ourselves, what are we going to do? How do we do this? We need a constitutional amendment that really cleans this up, that really, you know, maybe it was clear to them back in 1787, but it's not, it's not so clear today. We need an amendment, an authentic act of the American people to define these things. And so Congress calls for a committee of lawyers, constitutional scholars and the like, and they, in the, 19, in the early 1960s, 64, 65, they sit down and they start looking at culture, and they start looking at events, and then they make their recommendations. And one of the things they do is they watch the movie, The Cane Mutiny. Why? Well, what does it mean to be disabled? What does inability mean? And that movie gets right to the heart of that, and they actually use that movie as a scenario for the 25th Amendment. Got to take a break. Stay with us. It's the Dave Bowman Show, Constitution Thursday, right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. This is the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Listening to the Dave Bowman Show on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Zai Dave. Constitution Thursday on the big show. You want to join us? Text machine, voicemail machine, open at 209-565-Dave. Email is Dave at the Dave Bowman Show.com. And of course, you can always talk to me on the web. The Dave Bowman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and at the Dave Bowman Show.com. So, it was interesting because yesterday I wasn't here and we replayed the interview that we did with Del Wilbur a few years ago about his book Rawhide Down, which I still recommend highly. Rawhide Down is one of the best books about the attempted assassination of Reagan. And we actually talked and I had forgotten about this. I was listening to it as I was driving and I had forgotten that we talked about this specific thing which was that George Bush, when, they, when he was flying back from Texas, and they didn't know. I mean, at that point, nobody knew whether Reagan was going to make it or not. And 
they, the White House hadn't even confirmed that he was in surgery yet. And the, the Secret Service and the cabinet were pushing Bush, George W. Bush, I'm sorry, George Herbert Walker Bush, to land the chopper on the south lawn of the White House, Marine 2. Because he needed to get right to the Situation Room and and like that, and and Bush again, I've said this on numerous occasions. Whether you like his policies or not, I don't really care. George Herbert Walker Bush still one of the classiest people to ever sit in that office. And for me personally, I look at him as my president. I really do. Um, he was the first president that I didn't. That I, I, I wouldn't say he was the first person I voted for because Reagan was the first one I voted for, but, 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 but he was the first one that I really paid attention to voting for. And he was, you know, my president during the war. I have a lot of respect for him. I don't agree with everything he did. I don't agree with everything he said, but I, but I do hold him in very high regard. And one of the things that, that Dell was talking about in his book and, and on our show yesterday, which was actually from 2011, was talking about the fact that Bush himself said, no, we're not going to land this helicopter on the South Lawn. Why? For a couple of reasons. One, because that signals that I am the president. When they see that chopper land, they don't hear the radio signals for Marine 2. They don't hear all the stuff. What they see is the chopper landing on the South Lawn and me coming out to the entire country that says, hey, George Bush is the president. And remember, this is just literally an hour after Al Haig has made his I'm in control here statement. So Bush was looking at this going, I don't need any of the problems that Tyler had. I don't need the problems that Chester A. Arthur had. I don't need the problems that Grover Cleveland had. What I need to do is reassure the country that everything is stable. And so he landed at Air Force, got in a limousine, and drove to the White House. It's fascinating history, and it's fascinating ways to look at these things and, and to realize how much of our nation's history changes on what words mean and define. What does it mean in ability to carry out the duties of the office? Well, that question has never actually been answered. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it still hasn't been answered. Specifically for a reason why it hasn't been answered, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But in 1954... A movie was made called The Cane Mutiny. It was based on a book by Herman Wook called The Cane Mutiny. There are some minor differences in the movie and the book, but not, not, not enough to really get all that hyper about. The movie was fantastic. The movie was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It did not win Best Picture or Best Actor or Best Supporting. It should have. should have swept the Oscars, but it didn't. And, you know, I mean, let's face it, the Oscars are the Oscars. The movie... If someone were to say to me, Dave, you're the chief of naval operations for a day, or you're the, the commandant of the Naval Academy for a day, what, would, what one thing would you do? I would require, require every naval personnel on the face of the planet to watch that movie, and then we would have a discussion of it afterwards. It is an incredible story. It, just to give you the outline, the idea here is that there's a young ensign that you're following as he begins his Navy career during World War II, he ends up assigned to a destroyer minesweeper. This is not the glorious battleship aircraft carrier duty that he wanted, but it's a ship. And so he begins his Navy career. And one of the first things that happens is they get a change of command. They get a guy that's been in the Navy for, you know, 15, 20 years. He's crusty. He's old. He's by the book. And the ship, the Kane, the USS Kane, has not been run by the book for quite some time. And the rest of the wardroom, there are a couple of the executive officer is, is trying to do his executive officer best, but there's another officer and I've forgotten what his role is, but he is played by Fred McMurray, you know, my three sons. And he is brilliant in this movie as an actor. He's brilliant. And he is, he becomes convinced because he's a writer, because he's a self-taught, you know, Guy, he becomes convinced that the captain is wacko. He's wackadoodle. And he has books and he, he points out things in the books that say, well, see, people with this kind of psychosis, they act this way and look what he's doing. And as time goes by, there are incidents that happen that are interpreted by the crew in a certain way. 
and the wardroom becomes convinced that maybe McMurray is right. Maybe Kiefer, his, his name is Kiefer. Uh, maybe he's right. Maybe the captain has cracked up. I mean, it is war. He's been here a long time. This thing's going on. And they begin to, to talk amongst themselves and they begin to make up songs and nicknames. Old Yellowstone, they call him. They sing songs. We've got those Yellowstone blues. And they're embarrassed because this guy's embarrassing their ship. And at one point, they decide that they're going to go see Admiral Halsey about their concerns about this lieutenant commander on a little tiny destroyer minesweeper. And so they go all the way over to Admiral Halsey's flagship on the carrier. They get all the way to the door of his office, the three of them, and they decide, wait, I mean... Okay, we believe he's insane, but the Admiral has, you know, 600 ships to worry about. Quig, their captain, really hasn't done anything illegal or outrageous. He's just weird, and we don't like him. Maybe we better go back. And so they go back, and as they're going back, the fleet gets underway because the typhoon is coming, and this is all from history, Halsey's typhoon. And, of course, the ship begins to founder in the... In the typhoon. And at the climactic moment of the typhoon, Captain Quig appears to freeze. And that's important to understand that it appears that, and of course they film it so that it looks like he's panicking. It looks like he's afraid. It looks like he doesn't know what he's doing. And the executive officer and he get into an argument. And the executive officer relieves him, which is mutiny. This is your, under Article 184, you're relieved. And oddly enough, the ship survives. And of course, this results in a court-martial scene, in a, in a courtroom scene that is one of the most intense you will ever watch. I mean, it really is. And ultimately, the board decides that the mutineers were not right, but they were not wrong. They weren't guilty of mutiny, but... There's a lot of uncomfort with what they've done. Because the captain, just because it appeared that way, and that's one of the questions that they asked the executive officer, how long have you been at sea? How long have you been in command of the ship? This guy's been commanding a ship for 20 years. He's been in storms at sea. He knows what he's doing. Why do you get to decide he didn't? And when everything is said and done, they're acquitted of the charges of mutiny. That doesn't mean that they didn't mutiny. In fact, that's what Willie says, is that we were disloyal to him. We didn't help him the way he asked us to help him. He came to us and said, look, I know my ways are different. I know my ways are screwball to you, and I know know you don't like them. I need you to help me. And they ignored him. And that's what Willie says. Well, if if that's true, then we were guilty of mutiny. Yeah, you're right, says the attorney played by Jose Ferrer. That's when you learn you don't like it. You don't you don't work for a captain because you like the way he parts his hair. You work for him because he's got the job. Or you're no good. They watched this movie and they watched this scene and they realized that this was a perfect depiction of the argument over inability. The group that did this, and one of the people that did this was a guy by the name of John Ferrick, who has written two subsequent books, one of which I happen to have right here on my table, which I highly recommend. In fact, I got it at Barnes & Noble for $9.99. It was on sale. And they talk about the fact that they've watched this film, and they're stunned by what they're seeing here, because they realize that what they're seeing is exactly the same arguments that we're having about what it means for a president to be in the same situation. And they start putting pen to paper. And they come up with some recommendations in the 25th Amendment. And they realize that there's more than just this president. But they have to be definitive in what's going on. And so number one, in case of the removal of the president from office or his death or or his resignation, the vice president doesn't assume any powers. He doesn't become acting president. He is the president. Boom. John Tyler, you have... uh, You have left your mark on history. You are it. Ka-ching, it's there. Number two, they address this problem with the vice presidency where, you know, vice presidencies, vice presidents keep dying or 
resigning or, you know, John Calhoun resigned it over state's rats, that sort of thing. So they, uh, the president said, they, they, they fixed that. The president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirm, confirmation by a majority vote in both houses of Congress. The times that this has happened, it's been done as a joint session. Gerald Ford was approved under Nixon after Spiro Agnew resigned. And then when, when Ford became president upon the resignation of Richard Nixon, in accordance with Section 1, he became president. He immediately named Nelson Rockefeller as his vice president, and that was quickly confirmed. When then you get into Section 3 and Section 4. Whenever the president transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and to the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers, and until he transmits them to the is, the duties shall be discharged by the vice president. Now, this is where we start getting into some. What does inability to discharge mean? Arguments. They intentionally, the writers of the 25th Amendment, intentionally left that blank. They intentionally did not decide what that word inability would mean unable would mean. Since its passage 50 years ago, we've seen this happen a couple of times. Ronald Reagan did it a couple of times when he went in for surgeries with George W. Bush, George or George Herbert Walker Bush. George W. Bush did it at one occasion uh, when he had some surgery. And then they wrote back and said, okay, I'm back. And uh, he's no longer the acting president. And then we come to Donald Trump. And then we come to the point where we have a president in office who, well, people don't like the way he cuts his hair. They don't like the way he parts his hair. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything impeachable. He hasn't done any of those things, but we just don't like him. And we're making up names for him, and we're, we're, we're singing songs about him, and we're putting T-shirts, 25, 45, and we're, 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 you know, there's a fine line between humor, you know, a joke about a president's hair, and a joke, doing the air quote thing here, about cutting the president's head off. There's a fine line between saying something funny about the president and saying, where's John Wilkes Booth when you need him? as was said this week by, by actors. You don't like the way he cuts his hair. You don't like the way he, he does things. He hasn't done anything really, really wrong, illegal in those senses yet. Boy, we just don't like him. We're not, we're not going to be loyal to this guy. We're going to be the resistance. That's what we're going to be, the resistance. And Elizabeth Warren makes her statement. She comes out after the op-ed which was probably written by Huntsman, but who knows? She comes out after that and makes her statement. She actually says that the the cabinet should get together and do this. She actually said that. She, her words, not mine. If senior administration officials think that the president of the United States is not able to do his job, then they should invoke the 25th Amendment. Which says whenever the vice president... (laughs) whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments, that is the cabinet, or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the office or the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Well, the writers of the 25th Amendment were well aware of the history. They were well aware of the issues that had happened with Cleveland and with Tyler and with McKinley and Roosevelt. And they, they knew all of this stuff. And they had watched, as I said, the Kane mutiny. And they wanted to make sure that while one man was responsible for starting the action, he could not in and of himself complete the action. The vice president, presumably, because he has some sort of relationship with the president, should have to agree. Even if the majority of the cabinet agrees, 
that the president should be impeached, as Ms. Warren calls for there. The vice president can step his foot down, much like Tumulty did in 1919, and say, no, not a chance, not going to happen. Not on my watch. If any of the officers of the cane had stood up and said, nope, that's not right, the executive officer could have stopped it. They wanted that situation. They also made sure they put in there the executive departments, the cabinet, or of other such body as Congress may by law provide. They did that on purpose. They didn't say it was a body that Congress should do. They didn't want that. But they also understood that there might come a time when it doesn't work out. We can't even imagine the exigent circumstances where the cabinet couldn't figure this out. And so they made sure that if that ever happens, and if there comes some problem with that, if there comes a time where, where there is no cabinet, as is possible, if Congress doesn't start approving people, then they can define some other body for doing so. Of course, the problem with all of this is the president himself can then respond to the Speaker of the House and the president pro tem that, that no inability exists. He then resumes the powers and duties of his office unless the vice president and a majority of either the cabinet or the body Congress transmit within four days that they think he's not able to do this. And then Congress gets involved and Congress has to decide the issue assembling within 48 hours if they're not already in session, specifically for that purpose. Congress then, within 21 days after receipt of the letter, 21 days from when they're trying to assemble, has to have a two-thirds vote that the president is unable to discharge the duties and powers of his office. In that case, the vice president shall continue to discharge the same as acting president. Otherwise, the president is still the president. Sounds confusing. You notice that they don't remove the president. They just say he's unable to do his, he's not able. And you'll notice that in all these words, they never discuss what does inability mean. They do not outline it. There's no law that says this is the definition of inability. There is no reason for inability to become defined. For all the purposes of the 25th Amendment, which were to, quote-unquote, clean up this you know, confusion and, and make things very, you know, clear and precise, they left that one word, unable, inability, to, re, to be defined by the people involved. Why? Because very simply, nobody knows what it means. Like Captain Quig standing on the bridge of his ship in a typhoon, with all his experience behind him, knowing full well what he's doing. The fact that you don't know what he's doing, or that I don't know what he's doing, doesn't mean that he doesn't know what he's doing. You're going to have to be damn sure of yourself, and absolutely positive, before you put your signature on that letter saying... This guy's not able to do this because he's going to turn around and write a letter right back, just like Quig did, saying, yes, I am. And then we're going to have a big court hearing in Congress. We're going to have a big hearing in Congress where two thirds of the court, which is now Congress, is going to have to decide what it means. And, you know, as well as I do in this era, in this day and age, two thirds of Congress isn't going to decide anything except whether or not they should get a pay raise. The people who are calling for 2545 miss the entire point of the amendment, and they missed the entire point of the movie, The Cane Mutiny. They really did, which was, again, used as part of the, the scenarioing, Rosalie, as Alexander Haig would have said, behind the 25th Amendment's criteria. They didn't want, they did not want a willy-nilly usurpation of power by people who just didn't like the way the guy did things. You don't follow a captain. You don't serve a captain because you like the way he cuts his hair. You serve a captain because he has the job or you're no good. And there's a very fine line, as I said, between humor, <laughs> the president's haircut's funny, 
And here's a picture of the president with his head cut off. One is humor. One is not. One is making up songs and stories about a man because you don't like him. Well, it's not your job to like him. It's your job to help him. To do the best you can to make the country better. And it's Donald Trump today, but who's it going to be tomorrow? Vice presidents aren't going to be all that excited about, you know, jumping into the fray, signing off on letters saying, sure, I'm, I think he's incapable because they're, I guarantee you, they're watching that movie and they're seeing what happened to that XL going, wait, he was guilty of mutiny. And just like Chester A. Arthur, they're looking at it going, I don't want to be accused of that. I, just like George Bush, they don't want to land on the South Lawn. Mike Pence has already said he won't. So you're going to have to have one whale of a situation before he will. But that hasn't stopped people who have the illusion of knowledge from going out there telling you that they should 25-45 and selling t-shirts saying the same thing, right? I get it. We don't all like Trump. I don't agree with a lot of his policies. I got a lot of problems with him. (laughs) He has some real issues with some things that I care deeply about. But you know what? He has the job. Well, we're no good. Think about it. Got to get running. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly Live, I'm Dave Bowman. This is my show, The Dave Bowman Show, right here on the podcast, 99 Internet Radio Network. We're here every Monday through Friday, most most Monday through Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific, live on Facebook and on demand at podcast99.org. Stay tuned on the radio side. Tim Price is coming up next. If you want to hear him whenever you want to go, just go to podcast99.org and check him out there. We'll see you tomorrow for a Friday episode of The Dave Bowman Show. Have a great day, everybody. Bowman Show is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. For more information or to complain about how the show offended you, the text or voicemail number is 209-565-DAVE. For more information about the show, log on to the DaveBowmanShow.com. Hey, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television.